Welcome back to the Super Sapiens podcast, where we explore Super Sapiens metrics, the app features and experience, and how Super Sapiens around the world are driving the next step in human performance evolution. Homo Sapiens, meet Super Sapiens. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are listening from, and welcome to this episode of the Super Sapiens podcast. I'm your host, Zalin Fanek, joining me from London David Lipman. David, how's London today? And more importantly, how are you today? Sunny as always, mate. It's uh, <laughs> grey and uh, I'm doing pretty well, mate. How are you? I'm doing very well, wearing my Man United shirt, the away shirt that been getting a lot of compliments on. Two love wins it. on the bounce, so happy, man. Love it. Yep, I love it. I'm a Red Devils fan from way back. Um, in this episode, we are covering sleep and circadian rhythm, and we're going to get into why we are doing this episode shortly and then get into the nitty gritty of it. But before we do, we've got a couple of community things to touch on. One big, big one. Since putting out the previous episode, Super Sapiens has celebrated its fifth birthday. Yeah, it's super cool stuff. Um, obviously, haven't been commercially available for five years, but the company started five years ago. Uh, so yeah, just a big happy birthday to to all the staff members and all the Super Sapiens and of course the founding team. Yeah, I'm still making a very big difference in my life. I actually wanted to ask you, I've been very stressed lately for some reason, which I cannot figure out why. And my glucose has been running higher than normal the last couple of days where I've been feeling very overwhelmed. Is that a normal response? Yeah, I mean, so acutely stress will do that. Um, the subacute effects or the, the non-specific acute effects might be things like sleep. So if you're not sleeping as well, your glucose might be higher as well and a little bit more uh, variable, a little bit less stable as a result of a level of insulin resistance from poor sleep, which is part of what we'll get into in today's episode. Oh, interesting. I've actually been sleeping really well, sleeping longer than usual, but we'll get into it. Um, another quick community shout out. We announced it on social media last week. Magnus Sheffield, professional cyclist with Ineos Grandiers, coming on board as the latest Super Sapiens ambassador. Yeah, it's big news. I'm told he's a big deal. I don't know much about cycling, so I can't really speak to it. But uh, I hear good things about Magnus and uh, excited to, to have him on board and uh if he's listening, uh, we'll be reaching out to get you on the podcast, uh, do our best there. He's a young guy, has started out well in his career, still has a lot to achieve, but has massive, massive potential. And I predict big things to come from him. So excited, very excited um, to have him on board. What about you, mate? Tell me about training. What's been happening with your training? <laughs> well, you should know. You're busy coaching me at the moment. Um, but training going well. Um, what is fantastic, and maybe we can cover this in another episode too, is that I'm mostly training for two ultra marathons at the moment, a 56k run in April and a 90k run in June. So running has been more on the heavier side for me, not cycling so much, but I've still been trying to cover cycling because I have a couple of events coming up. Um, one being this past weekend, our annual mates ride, which is 230k roughly um i don't know what what that is in miles 170 miles um I, i'm i'm actually doing a conversion year now instead of just throwing out numbers and 230 kilometers is roughly 142 miles not 170 yeah. that i guess yeah i don't know where you got 170 from mate. um you pelican that's why we have a yeah you know, we need a fact-checking section of this podcast anyway my point being my longest ride 
in a long time is a hundred was 115 kilometers so about 71 miles um but surprised myself how comfortable i was over 230k and i'm guessing if i ask you why that is you'll say something like years of cycling adaptation and running benefit cycling i know you're a big believer in that right I was actually going to say it's my coaching mate, but um, yeah, the, <laughs> you're spot on. Um, many of the gains you make over a long period of time, uh, or the, the longer a gain takes to be made, the longer it hangs around. This is the first principle. The second thing is, yeah, you've cycled a ton, so you don't need a lot um, of specific prep in that respect. It obviously will help, right? There's no question you would have performed better if you'd done a bit more specific training, but the delta is not as big. And and then to the point you mentioned, which is running, I think running helps cycling a lot more than cycling helps running. That's the vibe I get from a lot of triathlon coaches and triathletes. They seem to say that to me. So I'll take it as gospel. And it makes some sense in that uh, cycling is a concentric only activity and it doesn't use a lot of tendons, whereas running is the, you know, it's, it's concentric and eccentric and uses a lot of tendons. So that will transfer into concentric only activity much better than the other way around. So that would make some sense there. And then energetically, it's obviously a lot more costly to run. And um, as a result, it's a much more potent stimulus, it, it roughly about a four to one ratio. So I'd say, yeah, about a half hour run is about a two hour ride thereabouts. I, I mean, it's common to see professional cyclists running in the off season to tick over and keep their fitness levels up. But something I'm noticing is even though a lot of their seasons have started now already, they're still continuing to run. And you made an interesting point the other day. You said something to the effect of how much benefits will they get from riding an extra 40 minutes or 50 minutes versus running 40 minutes or 50 minutes. Yeah, we were talking about previous guests, Ashley Milman Passio, actually. And you said she'd been for a 10K run. And I said, yeah, well, 10Ks for her is probably 40, 50 minutes thereabouts. And that will be very, very stimulating from a physiology point of view in terms of training stimulus compared to cycling, particularly in her, who's ridden thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of kilometers every year. So in terms of stimulus, that's particularly novel. Now, that brings its own risks as well. Like her injury risk on that run is significantly more than riding for... 200 kilometers plus but so be it anyway this is a little off topic not planned for this episode but anything you'd like to hear or like us to cover please email us david at supersapiens.com and we'd gladly love to dive into your questions so you can walk away with something but let's get to this episode this one is about sleep Um, David, so I said to you that I think an episode on sleep and the circadian rhythm would be quite interesting for a number of reasons. Um, the southern and, and northern hemispheres have got a lot of different rhythms in how they go about with regards to timing in exercise. I'm in South Africa, Australians, New Zealanders are the same way. We typically, if you have a nine to five, you'll be training at five in the morning, six in the morning. One reason being the heat, another reason being traffic, especially if you're a cyclist or a runner, traffic on the roads, etc. In Europe, people, t if you do have a nine to five, especially in summer, people tend to exercise after work. Um, Europeans also, I noticed, tend to exercise throughout the day. Anyway, my point being, I often wondered if you are training at five in the morning, six in six in the morning, and if you are not going to bed at 
8 a.m., 9 a.m., and you're not getting between six and eight hours of sleep. Like how, what an impact that has on your life. So how important is sleep? I mean, paramount. Otherwise, it wouldn't exist. There's no way that uh, sleep would exist across all species pretty much and be a third of your life if it wasn't important. Evolution would have like engineered that out by now if it wasn't wow. so important. So suffice to say, yeah, the utmost importance. Um, you bring up some interesting points there. I think part of the difference is cultural. I'd also say sunlight's a big part of it. I lived in the eastern part of Australia where it was light at 4 a.m. So you could actually run. So no problems. So there's that aspect as well compared to you know, here in Europe at the moment. Well, not quite Europe. In, in Britain at the moment, it's um, you know light at sort of 7.38. So I couldn't really run. You know, early, early. So there's there's those components, and then there's the cultural aspects. You know, and thinking about Spanish culture as an extreme example, it's a very late culture. You can't get much done in the morning, but you can get a lot done in, in the night. You know, it definitely in Australia, large portions of it, it's very hard to get a meal at say 9 p.m. at night. Whereas in Spain, that's still pretty early, right? In contrast, whereas whereas you could easily get breakfast at a cafe at 6 a.m. in Spain, you got no chance of that. So it's <clears throat> it's very much a redistribution rather than any sort of changes there. But what I would say uh, is, is worth noting, I mentioned sunlight and you know we'll get to that as, as part of the, the driver as well. It's definitely part of the stimulus, but you talked about how important is sleep, utmost importance, but there is some evidence and it's interesting stuff. And I don't think we have enough evidence to say categorically, but there is some evidence that let's call it not extreme examples saying like, am I better off sleeping three hours or two hours, but perhaps sleeping nine hours or eight hours, or perhaps eight and a half to seven and a half, maybe even eight to seven, you are better off waking up and exercising. Or if you, maybe not better off, but if you're choosing to do that, then it may be no worse, despite the importance of sleep. So there is some, obviously I mentioned in our introduction, like our metabolic issues around not sleeping enough uh, in terms of insulin resistance and those sort of things. And that, that's you know high risk and part of what's driving probably some of our uh, metabolic health issues in society but there certainly is a benefit to exercise in the other direction it sort of counteracts that and it does look to cancel out so to speak some of those negative metabolic effects so if you have had a bad night's sleep do exercise is one of the things i would say and, and if you are deciding that you need to skip a little bit of sleep occasionally to exercise i think that's probably okay i wouldn't be doing it chronically i'd definitely be going to bed earlier but yeah you mentioned um, that sleep is paramount and yeah, evolution would have wiped it out by now if we didn't need it. So maybe let's dive into the science behind it and what sleep is for a second. Maybe can you start by explaining what the circadian rhythm is? Yeah, so by definition, the circadian rhythm is any rhythm. You know, we, we, tend to talk to, we tend to talk to circadian rhythm as in our sleep-wake cycle, but it is any rhythm in the body that is a, or any rhythm that is about one day any biological rhythm that is about one day. So circa, which means around and dn being of the day. So the Latin is, you know, around a day in length. So these are roughly 24 hours. Some people's are a little bit longer, 25 or so. Um, and some of there's some variants around chronotype. So there are those people who are morning people um, and I'm one of them for sure. I am certainly better off waking up earlier and going to bed earlier. Um, is that scientific? You're saying you, you have a chronotype. Is that actually scientific? It's not just, oh, I feel like I'm a morning person. Oh, I feel like I'm a night owl. No, there are certainly, there are a handful of things here. There's a certain, there's certainly um, differences that are, I think, genetic in their origin. So there is certain differences. There's also a trainability to it. You can adapt and that's how you change time zones amongst other things. 
Uh, and then there's also an effect of age. So as we age, we tend to become more morning people. And most people remember from being a teenager, you're not so good in the mornings. Uh, there's lots of people who've talked about this. I mean, Matt Walker has spoken extensively or written extensively in his book, uh, Why We Sleep. And he's also been on numerous podcasts. You can find him, Dr. Matthew Walker. Um, it's really interesting stuff in this, but he talks a lot about this and you know, we should start schools later or whatever else. And I won't get into that debate, but the point being there is, there's certainly components that seem to be inherent and my, my parents are both very much morning people as well. Like I can, it's very helpful to me. They're very up early in the morning. I can call them. Uh, I can call them late at night in Europe because I know it'll be early morning there and they'll be awake. So I'm certainly not as much of a morning person as them, but I am a morning person. So uh, there is your chronotype, which seems to relate to like the early chronotype that I have seems to relate to a shorter sleep-wake cycle, a, a shorter circadian rhythm rather um, than the sort of longer later chronotype. So there seems to be these people who do their best work later in the day, all those things, like they exist as well. So your circadian rhythm is effectively a set of, it's, it's a rhythm across the day. Your body doesn't the same in the morning as it is in the evening. And most people who train, if you train multiple times a day, you would say this as well. They say, oh, in the afternoon, I can perform a little bit better. And that's irregardless of chronotype. Morning people will definitely perform better in the morning than evening people will. But morning people will perform better in the afternoon or evening than they would in the morning as well. And that's just warming up, waking up, being more aroused, all those things. And obviously... As we age, we probably take a little bit longer to warm up, but that's for a different podcast. Um, <laughs> so these circadian rhythms govern everything in our body. There are clocks. They call these clock genes. Um, and there are clocks in all parts of our body. That's in, you know, the main one that everyone talks about is in the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is in the hypothalamus just behind your eyes. And this is the one that's particularly responsive to, it's the master clock and it helps set everything else. And it's responsive to light. But there are other ones. They're in your digestive tracts. They're in your muscles. They're in everywhere. And uh, and as a result, all of these things run roughly on a 24-hour cycle. And that's why when you get jet lag, all of these things are off. You'll feel funny when you eat. You get a bit bloated. You're, all these things, right? You struggle with sleep, all of it. Your reaction time is off. Your decision-making is a bit funny. So they are all related. And, and you try and align them all. Now, part of the problem is when you misalign them, I mean, there are ways to misalign them within each other as well, which is a real problem when you eat at the wrong time of day or something like this, and it's, it, it can become a, a bit of an issue there. So I won't get too technical there, but that's what circadian rhythm is. And that's how we sleep. So you build up sleep pressure, what they call sleep pressure across the day, which helps you fall asleep. And ironically, this is related to adenosine, which is a chemical that sort of or a messenger in the brain and, and uh, coffee blocks the adenosine receptor. So that's how coffee helps you stay awake is via uh, sort of being a adenosine antagonist there. So you build up the sleep pressure, you sleep, and then you get rid of your sleep pressure, so to speak, and then you wake up and go again. So let's talk to me about jet lag then. If you have a circadian rhythm and you have all these cellular clocks all over your body and it's set for a certain time frame. I'm in South Africa now. Tomorrow I fly to the US and my time zone is flipped upside down. Um, like, can, can I, obviously you adapt the longer you are there. What happens? How is that adaptation happening? Is How do you set your circadian rhythm? Yeah, I guess. So circadian rhythm is set by what are called Zeitgebirs. Uh, Apologies to my German or to our German listeners uh, for my terrible pronunciation, but this is German for time giver. Uh, and these are basically signals from the environment. And so fundamentally jet lag is a misalignment of your circadian rhythm with the daytime effectively. Let's call it that. So your body thinks it's 7 p.m. and it's actually 
3 p.m. That is effectively what jet lag is. And then you get a bunch of symptoms as a result of those. We talked about them already, tiredness, digestion, all that stuff. So all of those signals help you reset your circadian rhythm, right? And the, the, these signals, the big ones are food. So when you're eating, probably a little bit of what? Light exposure. So, you know, when you're seeing, uh, you know, blue light particularly and red light and then sleep. So when are you sleeping? And then exercise as well. So generally exercise, particularly higher intensity exercise is awakening effect. This is why you need to be careful exercising high intensity late at night because it will help impair your sleep a little bit as well. So you can use these to manipulate your, it will help send the right signals to help you get on time zone quicker in dealing with jet lag. And that's, you know, what I would suggest. It's what athletes would be doing as well. But to your point, you're in South Africa. And I think, let's say you go to the East Coast. I believe that's they're seven hours offset from you. Is that right? Zion? That's right. Yeah. Seven hours. Yeah. Yeah. So it's seven hours at the moment. So that's what we call seven time zones. So roughly an hour is a time zone and you can adapt or you roughly adapt. They say one time zone per day. So it'll take you about a week to get on that time zone there, which is not particularly helpful if you're flying across to run the New York marathon and you're not going to land a week ahead of time. Now, if you can land two weeks ahead of time, it takes a week to get on time zone and you've got a week of good time there, happy days. That's awesome. But you can obviously try and start to move that clock earlier or rather, let's change the, the vernacular there. You can start to manipulate things such that you're adapting to time zone before leaving. So you can start to move towards that time zone and try and shift your body clock slightly. Now, that's pretty easy to some degree for you going to New York because it's seven hours. So you can start shifting a little bit later, but you can only do so many hours for your life before you leave. So generally you can do one to three hours before you leave. And then that requires you living your day on that other time zone, manipulating your exposure to these Zika So the light, the exercise, the food, all of that. So you would go, okay, normally I eat at eight and I exercise at 10 and I sleep at whatever time. And you would just shift that and you would shift it towards the time zone you're going to, to allow you to start to move onto that time zone so that you would hopefully have less jet lag when you get there. And you would then get there and continue to do that. And obviously the more aggressive you are with these signals, you th- my gut is that the more that you probably, the bigger the influence. If you're moving at one hour, probably doesn't make a big difference. A little birdie told me you are extremely aggressive and when you are flying, you go as far as to cover all of your skin, not just sleeping with a head mask on, on a plane, on a flight, but you cover all your skin to avoid light. Um, Talk to me about that. Seems a little crazy to me. Seems a little extreme, but talk to me about the benefits of that. Let me not judge you ahead of time. I'll take all of those adjectives. Um, <laughs> I am extreme. I am crazy in, in many ways, but also in this way. Um, yeah, it's so the there's blue light all over a plane. There's no question. Screens and light and noise and all of that. So trying to get some semblance of sleep and trying to send my body the right signals is to cover all the cover my skin up so that it doesn't get light on it because light i mean as an example if you close your eyes and look at a light you can still see light coming in so you're still getting the exposure to light and that's why we wear an eye mask but it's also why we tend to or i try and tend to avoid the the light on the skin that might be a bit extreme and it might not be helpful but i'm also lying there anyway trying to sleep so like so i cover my head with a blanket who cares um and i cover the, the skin with a blanket i don't really care so that's it's probably extreme but i go as far as to try and live my whole one to two days before on the time zone i'm going to now that's a bit hard to do, uh, particularly if you're going five plus time zones. But I try to do that specifically when I'm traveling. And of course, 
traveling east is much more difficult than traveling west. So traveling east, you have to go to bed earlier, get up earlier. That's a lot harder. So you can generally extend a day a little bit easier than it is to, to um, shorten a day just by virtue of the way it is. Um, and this, you'll, you'll notice this, people will tell you flying one way is much easier than flying the other way. And, and they'll tell you this in their subjective experiences as well. And there's some cool data and cool research looking at different teams, particularly in US sports, because there's so many time zones in the US and which way they're flying and what time of day the game is at and what impact it has to chances of performance. Because again, these clocks are in everything, including your muscles. And, it, and that will impact things like reaction time, you know, muscle function, all of that. So you can really entrain your body to perform at a certain time of day, which is super helpful, say in South Africa, when you guys, you all train at a certain time of day, but you also race at that time of day. So you start to entrain your body to be, that's your circadian rhythm. It's like we're up and moving and we're going at 4am or 5am or 6am. So that when that happens on race day, you're like, yeah, cool. That's what we do. So interesting. So do that. I, I think I, I agree with you. And especially the direction that you're flying, you know, I've got a real life example for you. Which direction? I hope is... you agree, mate, because it's, <laughs> I hope you agree, because it's not really, a, it's not really, a, it's not really an opinion. Point. It's a, <laughs> it's yeah, a, exactly. It's science. Uh, but New Zealand is, um, New Zealand is east of South Africa. Is that flying east? Did you say flying east is easier? Yes. And west is more difficult? No, I'd say flying west is a little bit easier and east is a little bit more difficult to shorten your day. But that will depend on, you've got to remember as well, because we're talking about not just the direction, but also in terms of the day. So you can fly east and lengthen your day. Um, you can also fly west and shorten your day because it depends on how many time zones you're flying across. Because if you're flying across more than, say, 12 time zones, you're effectively flying the other direction. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I wanted to tag on another point you alluded to. Um, you said that your circadian rhythm can be reset with food and you, you, you just brushed over it and you said particularly the type of food. Um, can you talk to me about the type of foods that's helpful? Because I've heard you talking about when you're flying, um, you fly with protein and prepare a lot of protein-based um, snacks for yourself when flying. Uh, so yeah, the flying with protein is more to do with the lack of protein you get on flights. It's generally, you know, when you've got processed food, which most plain food is, it's generally going to be fiber and protein deficient. So I tend to try and get a little bit of that myself. So yeah, nuts are a good example of protein and fiber. Um, that's generally what I try and do. And I try and again, eat on the time zone I'm going to as best I can and expose myself to coffee on the time zone I'm going to. So I tend to use, um, I fly with my own little coffee packets that I that I tend to use as well because it's a little bit better than aeroplane coffee as well. So there's that. But in terms of that, like this is a little bit out of the realm of good evidence-based science and a little bit more like we think it works, maybe some pseudoscience. So take this with a grain of salt. But generally, protein is a little bit wakening and carbohydrates help you sleep a little bit. Now, the exceptions being tryptophan, which is classically found in Turkey. You get that sort of, it helps with serotonin and sleep. So like, of course, there's that aspect to the protein, but that's a very specific case. But generally, carbohydrates help you fall asleep a little bit. So I tend to, when I'm flying to time zones and trying to shift things, I tend to try and go higher protein for my quote-unquote breakfast for the time zone I'm going to, try and keep myself awake. And then I tend to try and go a little bit more on the carbohydrates if I'm eating them at all there's an argument that you might not need them as David Dunn mentioned in our episode where we actually covered flying, but we also covered circadian rhythms and some sleep stuff in golfers. Uh, yes, yeah, so there's an argument you might not need so many carbs, but if you are, if I am having them, I tend to have them as 
my quote unquote dinner for the time zone I'm heading to. So that's interesting. Carbs help you sleep and protein is more awakening. So just generally my general day life, is it helpful to break up your carbs to carb heavy meals throughout the day? Um, I mean, protein throughout the day and then carbs at night. But what about overeating carbs at night and an insulin response and storing storing what you're eating instead of using it up? Uh, it's probably We're probably talking about the icing on the cake here, maybe even the cherry. And it's probably best we don't make a cake out of cherries or out of the icing. So, I mean, I would say split your protein across a day, get as much as you can for the most part, as we talked to Brendan Egan about, I think splitting your carbs around exercise time makes a ton of sense. Uh, whether that, you know, if you then have it, if that means you're training in the evening and you need carbs at dinner, then, then eat them. I wouldn't be too worried about this. This is a pretty niche situation. And as I said, it's probably out of the realms of science and into a sort of more pseudoscientific realm. But um, that's just what I do. I find it is okay. I don't know if it works. It's hard for me to tell you, but uh, maybe it just gives me something to do while I'm on the plane, otherwise being bored. Earlier on, you touched on me coming from South Africa to fly to New York to do the New York Marathon and how getting there two weeks before might be more helpful as opposed to getting there one week before. But what if I can't? Like, What implications does circadian rhythms have on racing overseas? Yeah, I guess... So the solution is try and get on time zone as early as possible, get there ahead of schedule as much as you can. As we said, um, I would be trying to start in the time zone I'm in, moving towards the time zone I'm going to as early as possible, but perhaps two to three days is probably reasonable for most people. Um, race time is a relevant variable though, which I think is really, really important here. So a good example might be um, like an East Coast US person going to Kona, for instance, say an East Coast triathlete going to Kona. This person might actually be better off not shifting their time zone quite as much because Kona is an early start. And if your time zone is actually East Coast and you're West of the West Coast, right? You're in the Kona time zone. All of a sudden, you're much more awake than you need to be at 4 a.m. or 3 a.m. when Kona starts. So you're actually in an advantageous time zone body clockwise. Your circadian misalignment, your jet lag is actually an advantage in this case. So it always bears considering like how much of the time zone you actually want to be on for the, from that respect. Because as most people would say to you, who've done an Ironman or even say a marathon in Africa or in Australia where they're an early start, like no one wants to get up at 2 a.m. and then eat and then go to the start line, right? So if you can be, if that's actually not 2 a.m. for you, it's more like 6 a.m. because of your time zone misalignment, happy days. People are a little bit happier in that respect, provided you can get to sleep obviously early the night before or whatever. So there is an aspect of misalignment being an advantage in some cases man i must tell you over the years i've worked with european professional cyclists and we've had training camps in south africa because it's sunnier etc and we'd enter them into local races to get some racing fitness but for a lot of those races you have to be up at 3 a.m to eat and get to the race start because the pros start at 5 5 30 and the looks on the faces when you tell that athlete he or she has to be up at 2 a.m to eat breakfast is <laughs> They are actually incredulous. They cannot believe the words coming out of my mouth. Yeah. And I, I had the opposite thing is I started racing marathons in Europe and I was like, geez, that's very civil. 10 a.m. start. This is lovely. <laughs> Can I have um, two breakfasts. So I, exactly. I saw the exact opposite. It's like, oh, I was going to get up at this time anyway. Um, so in terms of getting on time zone, I think there's, those things are there. And I think this is particularly important in getting on time zone, particularly because I mentioned before, and maybe the listeners haven't joined the dots, or maybe they have, and they're smarter than I'm giving them credit. 
for. And so apologies for that. But the digestive system has clocks in it as well. And so your ability to digest and intake food is impacted by this. So if you're doing an Ironman and you have to have a bunch of fuel or you need to, you need to eat, that's breakfast, but that's also through the day, your risk of gastrointestinal upset is much higher if you've got a circadian rhythm misalignment, which is high enough and a huge cause for DNFs as it is. So I think there's a really good reason to try and get on time zone here, particularly to try and you know allow performance and not have a, a DNF. Wow, I never heard that before. So are you, am I hearing you right? Are you saying if I arrive at the race a day, two days before, I've not got on the local time zone I'm at and it's like, it's eight, nine hour difference to where I'm coming from. That can have a major impact on how much nutrition I can take on in the race. If let's say I'm racing at the time that I would usually be asleep at home. I'd say it's probably going to impact your uh efficiency in digesting it. You may be able to eat the same amount. You may not have a huge problem, but it's certainly not going to sit as nicely as it would because the digestive enzymes aren't flowing. Like you don't need to digest things when you're sleeping. It's kind of like people who've got um, perhaps centrally controlled heating or water aspects in their house. They say, you know, you only turn it on for certain hours. You're like, this is when I'm going to shower. So I'm not going to have the water heating, you know, at whatever time in the middle of the night because it doesn't make any sense. Body's kind of the same here. There's no point spending resources to have digestive enzymes ready to go and all those things when you don't eat at, you know, for eight hours usually at that time. So yeah, it's going to cause a problem. And you saw, I mean, I could tell you this from when people who've done a bunch of night shifts will tell you this is like eating in the middle of the night does not feel good. You don't, yeah, it just it doesn't quite feel right and that sort of stuff. Cause it, yes, your body will respond. Of course, it's an adaptable organism, but it's not quite the same. It's not, yeah, it's just not quite as pleasant. You definitely a little bit more bloated and all those things. Same as eating on the plane, which is only partially to do with this. Cause of course there's the aspects of I'm sitting still on a plane. Like that, that's part of why you're also not digesting so well and you're a bit bloated, but certainly a circadian aspect to it. That's fascinating, man. On a side note, quick, um, I used to work in radio many, many years ago and I used to present the afternoon drive show. And I remember when I had to stand in on the breakfast show for a first for the first time and typically in South Africa, breakfast radio show started at 6 a.m. So you have to try to get there by 5 a.m. And my mate who was the presenter of the breakfast show was going on vacation, said to me, wake up early earlier than you normally would than you think you would and eat something because it will help you be more awake does that make sense to you it it did work i must say yeah for sure this is exactly what we're talking about that's a zik of you also turn on the blue lights turn on the fluorescent lights that's going to help you be awake i'm sure you found that in the studio it was a lot nicer than being in your car driving to work the noise the stimulation caffeine all that stuff if you'd exercised early as well i mean I used to use all of this when I was um, working night shift. So for night shifts, I would dark room as much as I could, cover myself, sleep as much as I could, get up, have breakfast food, go for a run, have a coffee, and then go to night shift. And then the opposite on the other end. Oh, makes sense. Um, Let's cover sleep hours. I always hear people giving advice and saying you should try to go to sleep as early as possible. Um, Irrelevant of irrespective of whether you get eight hours or not. So apparently going to bed at 9 p.m. and getting eight hours of sleep or going to bed at 1 a.m. and getting eight hours of sleep isn't equal. All sleep hours aren't equal. Is that accurate? I've certainly heard that said. I've certainly heard things like an hour before midnight's worth two hours after. I don't know how grounded in science that is. I mean, it certainly holds true for me personally, but I'm a morning type. 
I'm a morning chronotype. So perhaps there's an aspect of if you're a late chronotype, that wouldn't necessarily be the case. Uh, what I would say is generally as a rule, when it's dark, eat as little as possible and sleep as much as possible and see as little light as possible. That's probably helpful. But now in Europe, it's dark for a large portion of the day, Europe and, and the UK, right? So it doesn't hold as true there, but I'd certainly say not having large amounts of food after call it 7 p.m. makes a ton of sense to me. Not seeing a lot of light after 7 p.m. makes a ton of sense to me. Not doing a ton of high intensity exercise after 7 p.m. makes a ton of sense to me. And trying to get as much sleep after 7 p.m. makes a ton of sense to me. Now, obviously that'll be a bit different, but like, yeah, that's generally what I would try and say is if you can try and do things that are awakening during the wakeful hours, that's eat, high intensity exercise, seeing light uh, during the light hours, that, that's helpful. And conversely, in the hours you that are dark, try and not do as much of those. I think that makes a ton of sense there. Man, I have some Danish friends I just hopped off on a call with who'd be listening to this and you basically giving them a very small window in which they can can eat and a massive window in which they can sleep because at the moment it's they arrive at work in the dark, they leave at work in the dark. It's, uh, yeah, winter is real. Oh, yeah. And that's obviously the, the further polar you are, that, that you know, it's obviously not as relevant, but certainly in places that are very equatorial, it makes a ton of sense. Can we talk about um, alcohol and its relationship to sleep? <laughs> I mean, you, you've seen yeah. people sleeping after a good night out. Is that helpful? Is that a deep sleep or can alcohol actually impair sleep? Uh, yeah. So first thing to say is uh, sleep is not sedation and alcohol is sedating. It's not, uh, it doesn't make you sleep. So if you look at the architecture, just like anesthetics aren't sleep, that, that's not sleep, that's sedation. So you look at the sleep architecture as a result of um, either of those two things. I mean, you don't really get sleep architecture as a result of anesthetics but, uh, or anesthesia, but you definitely get sleep when you, you know, you do fall asleep as a result of drinking alcohol and people often find it easier to get to sleep. They hop on a plane, take a, something and do that. And uh, look, it's a depressant. So it certainly helps you ramp down to some degree, but yeah, it certainly isn't sleep. And the result of having to metabolize the alcohol and those aspects will definitely wake you up. So if you meticulously track this with a sleep tracker and you're honest with yourself, you'll notice you have more wake-ups, more fragmented sleep as a result of alcohol. And sometimes this isn't necessarily as apparent in the acute term, but if you, I guarantee if you spend two, three weeks without drinking and then have, and have a look at the consistency, you'll find that it's much better without alcohol. And, uh, the worse that is worse, the closer the alcohol is to sleep. So if you're going to drink alcohol, you want to keep it as far away from sleep as possible and, you know, allowing yourself to fully metabolize it. And you metabolize about 10 grams of alcohol or one standard drink per hour. It's a rough guide, which is, it depends on what you're drinking, but you know, it's the equivalent of, you know, one shot of spirits for most people or one ounce of spirits. Um, and then you know, varying amounts of beer, depending on the strength. And generally it's one glass of wine, uh, a normal size glass of wine. So you metabolize about one of those per hour. Now that's to the first phase of the metabolism. You probably need to give it a bit more time. So I would say you want to be trying to spend for each drink you have probably one to one and a half hours before bed or before sleep. Now that doesn't mean you should delay sleep because that's going to give you a double whammy effect, but it certainly means you should be thinking about when you're drinking and not having a second one or a third one late at night. 
Thank you, David. Thank you. Insightful and delightful, as always. Anything else you want to cover? No, hopefully people are enjoying these. I know we got some feedback that um, generally people enjoyed these, but they, the episodes with you and I, without a guest, but they enjoyed them infrequently. And so we are going to have some more guests on. We have an exciting guest for our next podcast. So appreciate people tuning in. Uh, let us know what you think. Please do send us emails, as Simon mentioned, david at supersapiens.com if you have suggestions for guests uh, or topics you want covered, questions you have, of course, send us through. Thank you for your time. I always walk away from these feeling like I am 3% smarter, which is very, very hard when you're already at 100%. Thank you anyway, David. Appreciate it. And we'll catch you on the next one. (laughs) 